Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 13. I mentioned last week that I thought it a wise thing for us to stay in the Easter season for a while and to think on the resurrection of Christ and its implications and even to visit in the Gospel narratives some of the some of the post-resurrection appearances and conversations that Jesus had. So we're going to do that over the next few weeks. But we're actually going to back up a bit with this passage, John 13, and ask this question, where in the world is Jesus going? Where in the world is Jesus going? And so read with me, beginning at verse 31 of John 13. And then reading through verse 3 of chapter 14. When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we give thanks to God for it. Let's pray. Lord, uh, do be with us as we seek to think your thoughts after you. Um, And Lord Jesus, grant us your spirit uh, so that we really can see uh, the trajectory of things here, the direction of things here the movement of things here, where things are going, uh, so that we, Lord, might be encouraged, even though you are absent from us. May we be encouraged as we think about these things this morning. Give us that encouragement by your Spirit's power, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) There's a a great scene in... um, in what is probably a kind of an average movie, but it's a fun movie. It's a good movie. Uh, Field of Dreams. I'm, I'm not a, 
Kevin Costner fan particularly, but, um, but I am a fan of this movie. And, and if you want to know why I'm a fan of this movie, it all has to do with this last scene. Um, the very last scene is the scene in which Kevin Costner, who's been estranged from his father, is reconciled to his father, restored to his father. If you build it, he will come. If you build it, he will come. It's just a, it's a, I, I, I fall apart every time I see the film at the end with this idea of real reconciliation between a father and a son who have been estranged over the course of his entire life. But the scene just before it is the scene in which James Earl Jones, who plays Kevin Costner's buddy in this film, in which his character leaves the baseball diamond and, and heads off into the cornfield. And nobody really knows what's out there in the cornfield, but all these dead baseball players come out of the cornfield every evening to play baseball on this diamond that he's built in the middle of this cornfield. And James Earl Jones is headed out there into the cornfield, and Kevin Costner is not particularly thrilled with this idea. He wants to go. He wants to go into the cornfield. And he say, asks the question, what's in it for me? I built the field. Why can't I go? But the point at this point in the film, which we will come to next week when we look at this passage again, the point is that there is work left to be done. Work left to be done for Kevin Costner's character. There is stuff left for him to do. So he doesn't get to leave yet. He doesn't get to go yet. But James Earl Jones gets to go. And the question is, of course, where is he going? Well, he's going out into the cornfield, and what that represents is a departure, doesn't it? It represents a departure, and it represents a lack of fulfilled hope in the character that Kevin Costner plays, and a whole lot of questions and uncertainty. Where are you going? What are you going to do when you get there? And those are the kinds of questions that Peter is asking in this passage. Jesus where are you going? He, P, Peter apparently is not particularly concerned about the commandment to love one another. You see him, him coming back to the question of Jesus' departure. He's not interested in that business. He wants to know where Jesus is going. The prospect of departure, of Jesus' departure, is profoundly troubling to him. Deeply troubling to him. And Jesus, when he speaks in the first verse of chapter 14 after, after having prophesied Peter's betrayal, Jesus says to Peter and to all of the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Yes, I'm going away. Yes, there will be a betrayal, Peter. But let not your hearts be troubled. Departures always involve troubled hearts. Two weeks ago tomorrow, Barb and I did something for the first time that I'm sure, I trust, we'll have to do many, many more times. We had to take that little baby girl who stayed with us for a week to the airport in Orlando and put her on that airplane. Her mother had the audacity to take her away from us. And we stood 
in the lobby of the Orlando International Airport, and we wept because we didn't want to say goodbye. Departures involve grief and sorrow and sadness. And that's what Peter and the other disciples are experiencing here. Jesus' departure from them, you can imagine. The prospect of his death, the prospect of his departure, all of it together leaves them with a sense of grief and sadness and uncertainty. Now for Jesus, what was happening? What was happening? This is really significant. For Jesus, what was it? It was a home going, wasn't it? It was going home. You know, it's hard for Barb and me, it's hard for, (coughs) excuse me, any of us, I suppose, who have raised children and then seen those children get married, particularly if they're girls. You know, that whole business of entrusting the Stradivarius to a gorilla. It's particularly difficult for us as parents of girls to imagine that home is no longer with us. When she's getting on that airplane and taking that little baby girl with her, she's thinking about what? Going home. Going home to the husband who loves her. To the environment that is her home. And here we are, left behind. Here we are left behind. That is what they were feeling. For Jesus, it was a home going. And Hebrews 12, verse 2 tells us that the prospect of going home, even though the path through the cross was real and the only path, the prospect for Jesus of going home was joyful. It was a joyful prospect. That's where Jesus is going. Hebrews 12.2 We're encouraged, we're admonished to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame. For the joy set before Him, the return to the Father, the home going repeatedly, In chapters 14 and 15 and 16 of John's Gospel, Jesus refers to his return to the Father, his going home. Well, that's great for him. But what about us? What about us? Again, if I can use another illustration to sort of segue us into the answer to the question, what about us? that also involves our oldest daughter, Katie. When she came home from college for the first time for fall break, the first evening that she was home, she came into our room. We were in bed. She came into our room, and she got into the bed with us, between us, snuggled down in between us at home, safe and secure. When, Jesus, when, when Katie came home, she came home to rest. But when Jesus went home, hear this. 
when Jesus went home, he went home to work. He didn't go home to rest. He didn't pass through the cross and then the glory of the resurrection and then the glory of the ascension and the glory of His being seated at the right hand of His Father in order to rest. Jesus went through the cross, through the resurrection, through the ascension in order to be seated at the right hand of the Father so that He could work. So that He could work. Yes, it is true. John 19.30 Jesus said, still on the cross, as He expired, as He died, His last words were, It is finished. What was finished? Well, his work on the cross was finished. His work as a substitute was finished. His work of living a life of perfect obedience for a disobedient people and then having lived his life as a substitute, living a life of perfect obedience to the Father in behalf of those who are disobedient, living a sinless life, in the place of those who have lived sinful lives, having lived that perfect life, Jesus then went to the cross as a substitute to die, bearing the sins of His people. And when He expired and then subsequently was taken from the cross, buried in the tomb, His cross work was finished. His work as a dying sacrifice was finished. That portion of it was finished. And there's such great encouragement and such great comfort in that. I trust you know that. Christ lived the perfect life. Christ died the substitutionary death. Christ's life was sacrificed so that your life might be freed and spared and secured. But the work of Jesus didn't end with His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. At his departure, what he is referring to in this passage, when he says to Peter and to the rest of the disciples, where I am going, you cannot come now. His departure out of this world, his return to the Father, was so that he could enter into the next phase of his work. The next phase of his work. His work as glorified king And high priest. Do you think about that? Do you think about the fact that Jesus right now is working? He's not snuggled down in the bed with his dad resting. But he is at work. And all of the movement of the gospel, the gospel of John and the other gospels, All of the movement is in the direction through the cross and after the resurrection and after those 40 days of appearances, all of the movement of the gospel is in the direction of his ascension. Luke 24, verses 50 to 53 record the ascension. Jesus lifting up his hands, blessing his disciples, and then disappearing from their sight as he is taken up. Acts chapter 1. A fuller account of the ascension of Jesus. Verses 6 through 11. 
when they had come together, they, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. He was lifted up. And the rest of the New Testament, passages like Hebrews chapter 1, Move us in the direction of understanding that Christ, having lived, died, been raised, having been seen multiple times by multiple people, was then raised up to the right hand of glory where he is enthroned as king over everything. The Lord now of glory. Where he is working, where he is ruling, where he is reigning best picture of it you find any place and maybe this will be a bit of an inducement to some of you to come out this evening the best picture you see any place of where it is that Christ is now and what it is that Christ is doing is Revelation 4 and 5 those two chapters which show us Jesus surrounded by angels and archangels surrounded by elders representing the church surrounded by the whole of the creation, offering him praise and glory and honor and blessing as the risen, ascended, and reigning king over all creation. And he's working. What you see in Revelation 4 and 5 is actually a fulfillment. We pointed this out a couple of weeks ago on that Sunday evening. Revelation 4 and 5 is actually a fulfillment of what Daniel prophesied in chapter 7. Verses 11 and following. I looked because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. Their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And then I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not ever pass away. His kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. What is Jesus talking about? In John 13 and then in 14, 15, and 16. What does he pray about in John 17 when he prays that he might be restored to the Father's glory? He's praying about, he's thinking about, he's talking about this glorious ascension where he is enthroned in heaven as king over everything. He's working, he's ruling, he is reigning. As we've noticed, again on those Sunday evenings, Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 15:25, he must reign, he must continue to reign until every enemy is defeated 
the last enemy to be defeated is death. So he's ruling. He's reigning. He's working. He's not resting. He isn't finished. And what is he doing? According to the Apostle Paul, he is defeating his enemies. He's destroying his enemies. And those enemies are the enemies of all of his people. What enemies is he destroying? Think about this. It's wonderful. I really want to encourage you to meditate on these things. Think about these things in the week to come and in the weeks to come. What enemies is the Apostle Paul talking about? In 1 Corinthians 15, what are the enemies that Jesus through His reign, by His rule, having been given all authority and dominion and power, what is He destroying? What is He defeating? What is He trampling under His feet? Think about yourself for a second. When you were born again, when you were born from on high, and just two things quickly about that, You read John chapter 3 where Nicodemus and Jesus have that conversation and Jesus says, unless you are born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. You can translate it either born again or born from above. I don't think you have to choose. It's both. When you were born again, when you were born from above, and the second thing to observe is that that is the defining and distinguishing characteristic of a true Christian. One who has been born again. One who has been born from above. One who has been invaded by an alien force. Just as Jesus' dead body was invaded by an alien force and raised from death to life. That's what a true Christian is. Someone whose life has been invaded. Born again. Born from above. When that happened to you, who did it? Did you do it to yourself? I don't think so. That's, I think, why Jesus uses that imagery. He wants to press home this very, very important thing. He uses the analogy of physical birth as a picture of spiritual birth. You didn't give birth to yourself physically. You can't give birth to yourself spiritually. When you were born again, who did that to you? Jesus. Ruling and reigning at the right hand of His Father, exercising all authority and all dominion, sovereignly moving by the power of His Spirit to penetrate the darkness of your grave and raise you from death to life. What is the enemy that was defeated? What is the enemy that was broken? The enemies of guilt and shame. The enemies of fear and doubt before the presence of a holy God. Those are real enemies. And when Jesus exercised sovereign authority and power by the agency of the Holy Spirit to penetrate the darkness of your death, your tomb, your lifelessness, Jesus trampled under His feet the guilt and shame and bondage 
of your sin. He sets you free from it. Completely free. Go to Romans chapter 5. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we've gained access into His presence by this faith in which we now stand. Absolute security, absolute safety. What has been defeated? Guilt, shame, fear, uncertainty. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now, please, please let these words sink deep into your hearts. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What has been killed? What has been trampled under the feet of Jesus, the ruling and reigning working king? The threat of condemnation for all who have trusted in him. He's not on vacation, folks. He's not resting. He is still working. Who else is being trampled under his feet? What else is being trampled under his feet? The devil. The devil of hell. The prince of the power of the air. Listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in trespass and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When Jesus saved you, what did he do? Well, I wish I had time to go to Matthew and Mark and then Luke 10 and just trace again the powerful significance of Jesus using the analogy of a strong man who possesses a house and who keeps his possessions locked into that house, which possessions do not have the power to free themselves. And that strong man in those analogies is the devil of hell, the one who is the prince of the power of the air, the one who has kept the whole world in darkness until the arrival of the long-awaited deliverer king, who is the stronger man, and who by his death and resurrection has bound the strong man so that he can go into the strong man's house and plunder his house. You know how in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. kingdom of darkness is depicted as a fortress and Jesus says the church will advance into that fortress and rescue people from those dungeons. The strong man has been bound by the stronger man and now the stronger man is trampling under his feet the prince of the power of the air. Satan, moment by moment, 
day by day, across the whole of this period of history from the ascension of Christ, Satan's head is being crushed by the victorious, reigning King of glory. He's still working. He's still working. He's not only working. He's not only working, setting people free from guilt and from shame and from degradation. He's not only working, setting people free from the power of darkness, from the devil's oppressions. But he is also acting as your great high priest in the presence of the Father. He is working. It's a wonderful picture. Wonderful picture. Two pictures, actually, in X. Chapter 7 and Acts chapter 9. Let me just refer these passages to you and you can read them this week. Acts chapter 7 is Stephen's trial and then his defense of the faith. And at the end of his defense, he looks up into the heavens and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Over three decades ago, someone pointed out to me that that is the only place in all of Scripture where Jesus is depicted as doing anything but sitting. He is always depicted as being seated at the right hand of the Father. But there, in Acts chapter 7, he is standing at the right hand of the Father. And the commentators, and this commentator pointed out to me that Jesus is standing as defense counsel, defending Stephen, where an earthly court condemns him, the heavenly court, because Jesus is there, still working, still pleading his righteousness, still pleading his blood before the Father. Jesus acts to defend Stephen. No, the earthly court may condemn him, but this is one of mine, and he is innocent. He's working. And so close, so close is his identification, and this is the other passage from the book of Acts. So close is Jesus' identification with his own people. So concerned is he for the well-being of his own people that when he confronts the the one who was to become the Apostle Paul, when Jesus confronts Saul, Saul who is on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting My people. Go check it out. It's Acts 9, verse 4. That's not what he says. He says, why are you persecuting me? Me. So close is Jesus' identification with his people. So inextricably woven into their well-being is his own well-being and happiness. You remember from Monday, Thursday? So woven into their well-being is the well-being of Jesus that when his people are being persecuted, he feels it himself. And he responds and he acts to defend and to deliver 
his people. In this particular case, he does it by humbling and breaking a persecutor of the church. Jesus did that. Jesus is working. He's working to set people free from bondage and sin by the agency of his spirit. He's working to free them from condemnation and guilt and shame and doubt and all of the rest. He's working to crush the head of the serpent. He is the stronger man who has bound the strong man and he is plundering the strong man's house. And he is working for you right now today, this very moment at the right hand of the Father, praying for you, interceding for you. I've said this to you before. When you ask me to pray for you, I do my dead level best to be faithful to that. But here's what I can tell you. I'll fail. I'll fail. I can put you on my prayer list. I'll forget where I put the list. I can put you on my prayer list and be distracted by who knows what. Do you know who will never, ever be distracted from praying for you, interceding for you? Jesus, Jesus, who has gone through the cross, through the resurrection, through the ascension to the right hand of the Father, who is ruling and reigning in glory, interceding for you. And don't forget Romans 8.28. Maybe this will add some, some perspective, some color, some depth of understanding to Romans 8.28. Remember, it is God who is at work, God who is at work, Jesus who is at work, by the agency of the Holy Spirit, working all things together for your good. Jesus is not on vacation, folks. High and exalted, high and lifted up. He is working, active, to do all of these things and so much more. And what we're going to see next week is that the reason that is so important for us to understand is because of what we have been called to in the service of Jesus until he returns to gather us to himself that we at last might be with him. Until that day comes, know this, Meditate on this. Think on this. Pray on this. Jesus is working. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come uh, now to this table, uh, we come with these, these thoughts in our minds, these thoughts in our heads, that yes, you are gone from us, yet yes, you have departed but you are engaged with us, in us, and in the midst of the world around us, doing all of these things and so much more. As we come to this table, would you work in our hearts, encourage our hearts, strengthen our faith, so that as we head out into this world, we can be by your grace and by your power, with consciences that are free and hearts that are free, we can be in the midst of this world the people you would have us be. To the glory of your name, for the honoring of the gospel, 
and for its extension to the ends of the earth. Hear our prayer, Lord Jesus. We make it in your name. Amen.